Hello again. Thanks for downloading and listening to the Weekly Curio Podcast. I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg. We start each week of the Weekly Curio with the first half of our puzzle. I'm going to read this twice because it's short. What is the next letter in this sequence? J-F-M-A-M-J. Again, that's J-F-M-A-M-J. I'm predicting right now the big summer blockbuster, the the new Planet of the Apes movie. Seems to be. It's been doing pretty well. It's And uh, if you're listening to this in a timely fashion, yeah. uh, I guess in the future you know if I'm right or not. <laughs> <laughs> right, or this could be the third well, or fourth or fifth installment. I was wrong. I thought the last Tom Cruise film was going to be a huge blockbuster. It's a good one. Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, right. I haven't seen it yet. It made money. It's yeah. Tom Cruise. He, there's only so bad a film can do monetarily. Right. Uh it, apparently, according to the, according to the Nerdist.com, science could give us apes as smart as Caesar, who was the right. smart ape star of, of Planet of the Apes. Talking ape can think, can puzzles, does puzzles, stuff like that. Yeah, and they don't talk as much as they did in the 70s. At least the no. part of the film I saw, the clips, they, they, they grunt mostly and use sign language. Yeah, you know, because we have monkeys that can sign. Now, there was Coco, the gorilla, who could sign, and there's been some, um, some question as to how much Coco could sign or how much Coco could do kind of a clever Hans thing with it. Trainers, that's, we'll keep that story to separate. But uh, in the new series, for people my age, we saw the old series on TV. The new series, they're much more ape-like than human. Where, and that's because yeah. I think we can do that. There's no yeah. more putting Roddy McDowell <laughs> right. in rubber masks and making him overutilize his face. Right. Now it's Andy Serkis in this motion capture thing, and it looks incredible. It really does. There's, there's no Uncanny Valley here. You, well, in between, there's a Tim Burton one, but I think as a people oh, on yeah. Earth, we've all agreed to forget that one. Yeah, uh, especially the ending with... Uh, that, well, yeah. Marky Mark. Marky Mark, yeah. Marky right. Mark and the, yeah. And the, the Funky Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forgive him that either. Uh, these scientists, uh, specifically Dr. Stephen Novella, well, which is a good last name for a scientist. Uh, University, uh, Yale University School of Medicine. He says, what you got to do is add more neurons. That chimps, we're going to use chimps because Caesar is a, a chimp, at least hybrid, uh, in the movie, have 7 billion neurons. We have 86 billion. That's a lot more. It's a significant gap to come to yeah. overcome. So you have to put more in there, which increases the brain size. Yes. Yeah, so you might know Dr. Novella from the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's the leader of that podcast. And I know Steve well. If you happen to hear this, hello, Steve. So um, one of the things that's interesting about humans is that we have bigger brains. But the reason we have bigger brains is because we have smaller jaws. We learned to cook our food, which allowed us to eat food that was softer. We didn't have to have these massive jaws to grind up tubers and nuts and bones and things like that. And when our jaws could get smaller, our brains could get bigger. And that just the number of neurons makes us smarter. And so what Dr. Novella is suggesting is if you want smarter chimps, give them more neurons. There's also an equation they use, a quotient they call it. to get a, So if you want to compare elephants... Uh, whales or mice. Uh, elephants have a brain-to-body size ratio of 1 to 560. Mice have 1 to 40. Yet elephants are smarter than mice. Pretty much, yeah. And we're on the same body-to-brain ratio as mice. Yeah, and they used to think that was in a meaningful number. And then they said, oh, well, wait, dolphins. Dolphins have an even better ratio than we do. But dolphins started out as land animals, and they lost body mass when they went to the oceans. 
So what so, they have yeah. is an encephalization quotient. You plot the various mammal brain and body weights on a graph, find a mathematical curve to fit the data, and you found an average mammalian brain size. So still rough shot in the dark, but yeah. now we've refined it slightly. You get then an EQ, or encephalization quotient. We get a 6.56. Whales, uh, sorry, dolphins, uh, 5.55. Yeah. And here's what they're telling us with this. We're at a 6-point-something. Chimps are at a 2-point-something. So to get the brain-to-body ratio higher, you're going to have a, a freaky-headed chimp yeah. bobblehead thing walking around. Or you've got to make the jaw smaller. Or yeah. you've got to make the skull thinner. And we, you know, we have an interesting problem is the reasons our brains can't grow much bigger because of childbirth, that there's simply not enough space for a bigger head to come out. If you ever look at the, the physics of childbirth in humans, it's kind of ridiculous. And if our heads got much bigger, uh, we just, they, we wouldn't be born. Well, then our, my understanding is also our long period of childhood mm -hmm. relative to other animals is also so the brain can develop because yep. we just can't do that in utero. Because of the restriction on birth. Right. Our larger brains actually enabled us to create an environment where we could have extended childhoods, which in turn allowed us to have larger brains. And, and you know, greatly extended. I mean, oh, compare, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you compare our childhood to any other animal. It, yeah, it's there, ridiculous. There really isn't any... I can't think of another creature where the, chi the, the children don't reach adulthood until, you know, 15 or so. And the children are, are virtually useless for as yeah. long. You know, or easy pickings or easy prey... For as long of a span of time, I mean, a, an elk, a gazelle, an elephant at two, three years old oh, yeah. has or a defense. Chimp. A chimp, a three-year-old chimp is an adult. It, they're breeding, they're out there, um, they're dangerous. And they're ten times stronger oh, than absolutely. we are. You can run up a tree, and yeah, what yeah. a 15-year-old kid will pretty much kill itself if you leave it alone <laughs> long enough. Just put it in happen, a room with man. three other 15-year-old kids, and you're going to come back to trouble. And wait, we're the smart ones, right? Yeah, we're, well, it's, they have more to learn. There's calculus involved, and there's hopefully some geometry classes or geology or something. Uh, their brains have to be bigger. There's no way around the fact that their brains would have to be bigger, says Novella. And I like this in the article, since they're tying it into pop culture, as we are with yeah, this sure. current film. Using that as an excuse to slip in some education. It's our spoonful of sugar. Uh, they mentioned that in the movie, the chimps' brains, uh, their skulls, rather, haven't changed size. Hmm. I'm like, wait, there's something inaccurate in the new Planet of the yeah, Apes movie? amazing. They ride horses <laughs> upright. They also walk upright a lot right. more. And that was what bothered me more than them talking. Yeah, why would your brain changes change how you walked? It wouldn't. And, and my brain picked that out. Yeah. Like the fact that the chimps and orangutans, first of all, live together. Yeah, right. Is, is very strange, right? My yeah. brain completely okay with no that. No chimps in Borneo. Right. Totally fine with the fact that these chimps have a plot and a plan and an army and uh, mechanisms for farming. Totally cool. But they show a scene where Caesar walks upright to get on a horse, and my brain goes, no, this movie's not accurate. <laughs> RealClearScience.com fires up a discussion. The headline is Scientific Americans, PC Police, fires blogger. PC, in this case, politically correct. Yes. Not just, I thought, of course they have personal computer police. Yeah, That's, only Max Love. Who's going to write their good blogs on personal computing? <laughs> it, yeah, no. This is uh, specifically, what I guess it, it, it's 
keyed to Richard Feynman. Right. So that, to be clear, this is not Scientific American, the magazine. It is right. their blog. Different yes. journalistic standards. This is the stuff that goes up on the web that's not written by the same people who are writing articles for their magazine. So it's going to be racier, dumber, headline grabbier. Not, not as well researched. You won't believe popular. what happens next. Yeah, it's not quite that, that bad, but... Uh, so, so what happened is someone wrote an article pointing out that Richard Feynman, for all the wonderful things he gave us in appreciation for science and easy explanations for quantum physics and things like that, he was a sexist pig. And that's the fact of it. And someone wrote that as a blog, basically. Um, and Scientific American pulled the blog. They pulled it down. They said it wasn't politically correct. Well... <sighs> It, in fact, is, first of all. Yeah. Uh, it's... It is exactly, because political correctness is just a lean towards, and it's sort of an attack on, nicer language. Mm -hmm. Right? So you don't call someone a tranny. You call them a transsexual or transitioning person, or just a female or, or male. They you would go, like. You lean into what, yeah, mm -hmm. you give them the choice. Uh, or you say African-American instead of black or colored or what have you. Yeah. It's just leaning as much as you can towards nicest. Then, of course, it goes out of control, and the garbage man is now a sanitation engineer. And yeah. That's the it, attack is like when they call something PC, they're usually saying you've gone around the bend of being nice into crazy hippie territory. But this one's interesting. This isn't. Saying a guy can't say awful things about women is not political correctness. It's modern sensibility. But I think their argument is, and I'm, I'm speaking for them when I really shouldn't be, yeah. is that this is an icon of science. This is a man who gave us so much. How can we sully his reputation now that he's dead? Is it sullying to say an old guy was sexist? Is that sullying really? Do I not think that Albert Einstein had opinions on uh, uh, Mexican gardeners or a half-black president or a woman wearing sure. jeans? We know he was Abraham, an old guy. We know Abraham Lincoln was a racist. You don't yeah. have to read too far to see that. Isn't that every old dude ever? <laughs> or, I mean, seriously, and, and is many it, of isn't the that going to be us in 30 years? <laughs> well, it's very possible. I mean, opinions change and stuff. And Richard Feynman's antics today would be much, much less acceptable, hopefully, than they were in the 50s and he might have changed. And Those hits on the hand might have, they might have changed his behavior and his mind. Now, for those Maybe. who aren't aware, what we're talking about here is Richard Feynman used to go to bars and pick up women, and he would, he would use pickup artist techniques. Yeah. He, he had a code, and he would do things to get women to sleep with them, and, and not for meaningful relationship, just to completely use them and then take off in the middle of the night. And the offense here isn't a guy going out to have a lovely evening with a willing participant. No. The offense here is if you don't know what the pickup artist is, it's a scumbag yeah. who uses rather harsh psychological manipulation to prey on the weaker mm -hmm. members of the herd or pack in this case and to hunt for a temporary companion. Right. And, and so it's the, it's the techniques he wrote about that were really gross. It wasn't he said, I went to a bar, I mentioned I was a Nobel laureate, yeah, right. and I took a lovely young lady back to the hotel for an evening. That's just adults having fun. Never found out what her name was, don't yeah, that's care. Just, that's just our bonobo cousins <laughs> expressing themselves in our brain, right? You know, he, he was, he's in a he, you know, Nobel laureate. He, he was in a position of power. He could get young women to sleep with him. With there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but his attitudes towards these women made it clear that he didn't value them as people. They were just objects to him. And this cuts through the other things. We see this in his picking up women. We also read about it in a book. We also see it in some interactions with colleagues and peers. It wasn't as if he just had one little compartment that was sexist in his brain right. when it came to getting laid. He also brought some of that, at least some of that attitude bled into... Yes. 
other relationships where it is, okay, now we're grown-ups trying to solve life's big mysteries. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could drop all the chauvinistic crap, Professor. Yep. He didn't think women had a place in science like men did. He didn't think women had the same kinds of minds. So, okay, this is not an unusual phenomenon. We have this, this person who's somewhat famous who had these opinions and ideals that we no longer think are valid, and I really hope that I would never have thought were valid, but again, I'm a product of my time, not his. What do we do with this? Some say we disregard Richard Feynman completely, call him a sexist pig, throw his books away, and ignore him. And I am of the opinion we need to separate the art from the artist. I'm also kind of, I guess I'm just sort of belittling the stupidity, too, of like, yeah, yeah, old guy disease. Okay, who Ah. cares? His opinion is stupid and goofy and dated and dead and archaic. So I'm just sort of poo-pooing that whole part of his brain and going, yeah, 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 shut up, old guy. Right. Let's do the books. Tesla loved pigeons a little bit too carnal. Yeah, Edison yeah. had a lot of terrible oh, opinions Edison. about females. Yeah. And in my brain, it just goes, yeah, 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 old dude disease. Shut up, Grandpa. <laughs> you know, and I just sort of belittle them and poo-poo them and, and cut them off. Hey, let me see the math you did mm-hmm. instead. And I guess that's why I don't think it's – now, here's the problem. I probably don't think it's as big of a deal because I'm a white male sure. in America. Mm-hmm. I'm sure women listening to this podcast – would want to fight it more because it didn't die. I'm, I'm thinking oh, it's of it as dated, and it clearly isn't. Yeah, no. I'm thinking of it as shut up, grandpa, but you can go to any political convention and meet people with equal or worse opinions oh, sure. who are 20. Shut up, bro. Yeah, shut up, as dude. Well. Yeah, I mean. And yeah, we're going to have a big debate about Hillary and Elizabeth Warren right, coming up in coming. a few months. Can a woman be president? Really? Yeah. That's a debate? I'm going to point you to the Philippines. Yeah, or Canada or uh, yeah. Australia. England. Or, yeah. And so, I don't know. How did they do? How's Angela Merkel doing? Yeah, right, We're exactly. We're having a debate. Right. Uh, yeah. How, or can an American woman be president? Should that be the question? Are they yeah. remarkably different than a Filipino? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know, that Corazon, she was a different type of woman. <laughs> Yeah, I, to me, this seems ridiculous, but I guess were I a female scientist, I would have a completely... They're yelling at their iPods right now. Well, the thing that I don't like about this whole thing is that Scientific American pulled the blog. Now, I haven't read the original blog, but from what I saw, how I saw it described was it was completely fact-based. It wasn't suggesting that we disregard Feynman's work. It was saying, hey, let's keep in mind here, some of these heroes we worship have pretty dark sides. And I can tell you from personal experience, if you want to keep your heroes, do not get to know them any more than you do now. Also, how big of a Streisand effect is this? I would not have seen this stupid little blog post had they not pulled it. And you can't pull anything off the internet. I got an internet wayback machine online, right? I could find that blog post in three minutes. Probably a link to it. Oh, yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. Boom, I'm reading it now, and it's the Streisand effect. Right. Yeah, I mean, I deleted it from the internet. No, you didn't. GMOs continue to be a sticky topic <sighs> for the science and curious minded. And you and I have this have this argument quite a bit because we don't argue about much. There's mostly common ground. Yeah. We generally if you hear Jeff and I debating on this podcast, we debate an imaginary third straw person. Right. Who's in the, we both attack that person. Another reason that person I've made up is stupid. Yeah, he's terrible. Furthermore, uh, however, we have had an argument on the method with which we attack the anti-GMO campaign. Yeah, okay. They created the word Frankenfood. Right. And man, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's That's easy. good. Calls up an image of this unnatural monster made by a mad scientist, and he goes out. Although, if you read the book Frankenstein, the monster's not the monster. Yeah. 
And, but anyway. in, a, in a single what, portmanteau, I guess it would be. Yeah. They have made an argument. They're right. done. They go, that's Franken food, and they walk away. You're screwing with nature, and it's going to turn into a monster and kill us all. And now i got to do 500 words to rebut your one word. Yes, at least 500. That's kind of the, that's the burden of science is that explanations can't be made with one portmento. Well, that's true of almost any intellectual or nuanced argument. Mm-hmm. You go, the Jews are bad, the Palestinians are bad, and you walk away. Right, yeah. And if you have anything in between where you go, well, actually, it's very complicated. I am bored now. Bad. And they walk yeah, away. let's talk about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, because that'll be nice and simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's just do two, two, three minutes on that real yeah. fast. Knock that out, and then you can put it on a sign and wave it around at people. That's the same thing with GMOs. It is. Once they yell Franken-food, I'm like, oh, we don't have anything like that on our side. Right. We have no counter. And one of my big complaints is that the science-minded will conflate, will, will put in the same category genetic modification with grafting and cross-pollination. And to right. the folks against it, those are two different things. Grafting and cross-pollination, to their mind, mm-hmm. is a slower process with built-in Mother Nature safety checks along <laughs> the way. Yeah. And primitive people have been doing them, and it's a 10,000-year-old technology, 20,000-year-old technology. It is an old technology. We've been doing it for a long time, and it's what we know. And it is, in their head, conceivable that a banana could make sweet, sweet love to a coconut. (laughs) Because in their mind, it's both, right? So you go, okay, well, they're both plants. But when you put fish DNA into my strawberries, which is always an example I use. Sure, that works. It actually didn't work. I was trying to make it more frost-resistant strawberry. Right. They didn't. It failed. But yeah. <laughs> but it sounds exotic and ooh, how interesting! They put a fish in a strawberry. Uh, Never will a right. fish make sweet, sweet love to a strawberry. Right. Without the help of a lap. And so, to their mind, that's your Franken food. Right. If you were talking about speeding up cross pollinization, which is what you are, or talking about speeding up grafting techniques. And one point that you make that I like, and I hate when we make that argument, because I agree with your conclusion, but I hate that argument, because I see along the way how they'll tune out. Oh, yeah. that's the, they, Yeah. They're so wrong, it's difficult to even get to a common frame of reference to even discuss yeah. the issue. So explain to me what you were talking about, and your background in this is important, because you've yeah. done this kind of stuff. Yeah, I used to work in a lab. Why is the Franken food safer than the ancient Aztec grafting. <laughs> oh, what a loaded question. GMO- That's how they'll phrase yeah. it, though, right? No, That's it what is. Just, it um, is. On Fox right. News, coming up on Tom O'Reilly. First off, all right, so Frankenfood. Let's stick with the fish and tomato example. So, uh, and, uh, and strawberry example. Whatever, all three. So the, the, you can make a lot more money if your strawberries don't freeze. You get a longer growing season, you get a larger strawberry. And there are fish that produce antifreeze, basically. Yes. Okay, so the idea was we were able to isolate the gene in fish that produces the antifreeze. And the idea was, what if we put that in a strawberry? Now, stop the presses. This is not taking a fish and combining it with a strawberry. You are not going to have a strawberry with fins. You are not going to have a fish that's red and has seeds. Nor you is there taking, a glass of wine on the table, nor a candle lit. No. There's no... You are taking some chemicals that exist in a fish and putting them in a strawberry. Now, these chemicals are instructions. They do tell the organism what to do. But consider this. If I can get that one gene that I know what it does into the strawberry, I still know what it does. Now, all right, so... And what it doesn't do. And what the it doesn't do. The strawberry doesn't grow gills or start right. feeding Those are different more. genes. We know, we know what right. the genes are. Those are different genes. And now. that's important that the Godzilla effect doesn't happen. No. The Frankenstein effect doesn't happen. Where because you tampered with nature right. and put that fish DNA in, it's a fish 
code, a fish yeah, instruction, no, it, a single one, it won't breathe underwater. Just because it came from a fish doesn't mean it is a fish gene. It's just a gene. that The genus is neutral. It happens to be found in fish. We put it in a strawberry. It happens to be found in a strawberry. What the gene does is always going to be the same. Now, you are creating something new. This this. Strawberry with this gene in it hasn't existed before. Maybe we missed something. Maybe there's a gene in the strawberry that will interact with this gene and do something we never thought of. Maybe it'll make a poison, for example. And that happens in eugenics. That happens in breeding. It can that happen happens in, many, in animals yeah. when so, we try and breed them through conventional means. Yes, it does. So what we do with, with GMO strawberry, for example, is it's tested to death. It takes at least seven years for a GMO strawberry, say, to get to market. That's what GMOs are now. Now, this is just the science of it. I'm not going to get into the politics of monoculture and how Monsanto's evil totally that, separate that, issues. That does conflate the issue, It though. totally conflates it. Monsanto, once you have a legitimately evil corporation funding and doing it, it gets associated yes. with, well, who's going to be in charge of your freaking oh, yeah, yeah, food? Yeah. Nope. But we're sticking with the science here. Now, that's the new way. What's the old way? Let's say you wanted to make your strawberries last longer. You would grow a whole bunch of different strawberries. And often, and this has been going on for dozens and dozens of years, you'd irradiate the seeds with seeds, irradiate the seeds with ionizing radiation. You would try to make mutants of the seeds. Now this forcing is, evolution forcing, in the right. random element you're part. You're breaking genes, you're making things random. So instead of our new process where you're taking one gene that you know what it does and inserting it in, you're just putting the whole thing in a blender and mixing it up and you have no idea what you're going to get. So you end up with a thousand bizarre things, tomatoes with with like 82 different leaves and orange tomato uh, tomatoes, I keep saying tomatoes, strawberries. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Strawberries that, you know, that that have seeds grown out of their stems, all this bizarre Frankenstein stuff, and that's from the natural process. Because what you're doing is you're combining thousands of genes haphazardly, and you don't know what they're going to do. What GMO technology does is it lets us skip all that experimentation and in a controlled, much safer way, produce fruits and vegetables. And we're not going to get there naturally. You're not going to get rice that has vitamin A. Well, that's a very good example. So then the other part of the equation is risk versus reward. What's the risk of GMO versus natural plant breeding, which is the proper term is plant breeding? There isn't any. Now, it may look like there is, but there is actually less risk with GMO than traditional plant breeding. Okay, let's say you argue that point. I'll concede it for now. What's the reward of GMO? The reward of GMO is saving billions of lives. Yes, it's huge yields. It's huge it's, profits. You can go and, like, look at Africa. Africa's got famine. It's always had famine. We now can produce rice, that golden rice, for example, that will prevent blindness. We can produce rice that produces a much greater yield with less water. We can only do this with GMO. So if you start trying to take away GMO, you're sentencing millions and millions of people to starvation. Now, what about the Norman Borlaug effect? Why not just continue the more natural-sounding work of Norman Borlaug, who, if you want to Google, mm-hmm. it's the short-grain yeah, wheat. he saved a billion lives. Feeds one a billion guy. people yeah. a day. One of my heroes, yeah, Norman Borlaug. Yeah, absolutely. By creating a short uh, stalk of rice, I'm uh, sorry, of grain, and the reason you want it shorter is because the top could have more grain pieces on it. And didn't tip over. Right. So he created the dwarf strain, whatever it was, and he yeah. did it through grafting and through more traditional yeah, he did means not have with science logging that's right. in the 70s. 
why don't we just stop breeding fish with strawberries and breed simply more resistant strawberries? Because we have better tools now. That's the only answer. GMO, and, and the problem is technology is the uh, terminology too. It's not GMO we're talking about. It's gene splicing. You're taking genes from one organism, putting them in another. That's gene splicing. It's a new technology that we have finally mastered, and that allows us to do whatever we want within a certain thing. So if, let's say you want vitamin A to suddenly appear in a rice crop where it isn't normally found. That would take... And that's what cures the blindness. Sure, right. Prevents blindness, yeah. specifically. So that would take 10,000, 20,000 years of plant breeding to be able to do that. Or... So Norman Borlaug needs 20,000 years yes. of time, and we're able to compress that time down to seven to... Well, it, once it works, seven to 25 years to get it right. Right. But we could get lucky... Nail it on the first try and well, seven years of testing and it's in the field. Technically, we could do it in a year. Okay. Technically. Now, because we're actually safety-minded, science people are actually safety-minded, I know it's a shock, but it's true. It takes seven years because GMOs are the most tested crops there are. The other stuff that's not GMO, the organic stuff, that's just thrown together. And some of it has been poisonous. There have been species of potatoes that have been poisonous, some tomatoes, tomato vines. You want to eat a tomato vine? You'll be dead shortly. There's lots of poisonous stuff out there. GMO actually lets us avoid unexpected side effects like that easier. So the fear against GMOs... The technology is unwarranted. The fear against GMOs being used unethically by corporations or governments, definitely something to talk about, but not related to the science. Just because something is a GMO product. How do you put a wedge in there? Then? That, I guess that's our challenge then as thinkers, because the argument you've made on it being safer because mm -hmm. of science, people buy. They have a cell phone, we put a man on the moon. Yeah. So I think they trust science now more than they did at the time of the first Godzilla movie. Well, I hope so. More and more, they will. I mean, inevitably, truth wins. But now you have the second problem of, I believe there are legitimately evil corporations in charge mm -hmm. of this. Sure. If a corporation could be called evil. Uh, terrible, terrible forces. So the next phase, the next fight, when you have this discussion with someone, they're immediately going to roll into, yes, but Monsanto, blah, blah, oh, yeah, blah, right. Hitler, yada, yada, destruction of the planet, blah, blah, blah. Well. How do you wedge in that conversation and separate out? I would say you, there's two ways. One, it's always political. You vote for the right people, et cetera. You know, very slow process, doesn't always work. The other thing is educate farmers. Farmers are not the most educated people in the world. And I am not denigrating farmers. I know farmers. Farmers are some of the cleverest, toughest, hardest working people I've ever met. If you have a problem and you can't figure out how to solve it, a farmer will figure it out for you. But they're smart in the short term. They are at trying to get enough money out of their crop from this year's crop to go to the next year. Yes. Ten years down the road, they don't know what's going to happen. And what you get is stuff like the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma, which was a completely gener man-generated phenomenon, completely done by farmers trying to get as much money out every year. GMOs are the same way. If you start doing monoculture, you're planting 50,000, 60,000 acres of exactly the same plant, you're going to get a whole new set of problems where you wouldn't if you did every third row was a different kind of plant or something like that. So... I would love to see farmers get more educated on the science of it. And this is a, a two-way street. The farmers need to make the effort, and the scientists need to make the effort to talk with the farmers. I mean, you know, we've got ivory tower syndrome there, too. 
That's what I would like to see happen. And I have seen it happen to some extent. If you start reading the comments on GMO blogs and you stay away from, you know, the whole food soccer mom folks, um, sorry to use a stereotype, but that one does kind of fit, and start look at the people who are working in the field, a lot of the farmers are coming around to saying, you know what, GMO is fine, but I don't like how Monsanto makes me only use their seeds or sues me if I use seed from last year or, you know, whatever kind of monetary restrictions. The practices are. are something they're attacking, but the right. principle they're on board with. Yeah, and that, that does seem to be the case. Farmers are not the ones who are anti-GMO right now. Now, they might be anti-Monsanto, but they're not anti-GMO. The people who are anti-GMO are the same people who hate vaccines, who think there are chemtrails, who think fluoride's going to hurt them. It's a weird overlap of the extreme liberal and extreme conservative, yeah, too. Yeah, it is. The anti-GMO crowd is a very strange Venn diagram. It really is, and they're, they tend to be more educated than the general public, but they don't seem to understand the science of it, and they have a deep mistrust of anything with the word chemical in it, which, if you do any research at all, you'll realize everything is chemicals. It's called, it's called the naturalistic fallacy, if anyone wants to look up the actual phenomenon. <laughs> And we thank you for downloading and listening to the Weekly Curio Podcast. Come see our show. Yeah. Jeff and I, with our friend Blake and our, our, our science advisor, Dr. Pink Glasses, <laughs> have created a show called Science Alive. If you're listening in July of 2014, possibly August of 2014, yeah. we have this show running at my theater, which is in Edison Park, Chicago, kind of on the fringe of Chicago near O'Hare. You go to WIP Theater, W-I-P, and American Spelling, E-R, W-I-P-T-H-E-A-T-E-R.com. Click the Kids Show's link, and there it is. It's a free show, 1 p.m. on Saturdays. That may change if it gets popular. It may add shows. Yeah, we'll see. We eat fire. We run 125,000 volts through my body. The old Tesla, Michael Faraday demonstration that they used to do. We throw 64 million-year-old poop at kids in the name of science. Certified GMO-free. There you go. Uh, it's a really fun show. It's a goofy, stupid, and smart experience. And we'd love for it to be popular because there's no point in doing a kid's show. We aren't making any no money. Kids. So we might as well have 150 people yeah. in there laughing and having a good time and making us feel like we're doing something. Again, it's whiptheater.com. Until next week, I'm Tom Britton. And I'm Jeff Wagg with the College of Curiosity and the answer to this week's puzzle. What is the next letter in this sequence? J-F-M-A-M-J. And the answer is J. Why? I'd love to have cut it off right there. Yeah. And just played the, <laughs> the answer music. is, do, 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 do. and the answer is J because it's the first letter of the months of the year: January, February, March, April, May, oh. June, July. Oh.